Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to grow throughout the world. The United States has now become the epicenter of the pandemic with a rapidly growing number of cases and deaths. Today's episode will focus on our discussion on respiratory support and mechanical ventilation with COVID-19. Recognizing that we still don't know enough about this disease and still unclear what would be helpful and what would be harmful, we thought that a discussion on what we've learned so far and how to apply these thoughts at the bedside would be timely. Our guest is Dr. Luciano Gattinoni, a true thought leader in critical care. Dr. Gattinoni is Emeritus Professor of the University of Milan. He is currently working as a professor at the University of Göttingen in Germany. He introduced the concept of lung rest by extracorporeal CO2 removal and acute respiratory failure. He pioneered the use of thoracic CT and ARDS, which culminated in the baby lung, lung recruitability and mechanical power concepts and theories. His research is focused on the pathophysiology and treatment of acute respiratory failure, including prone positioning, sepsis, and acid-base disorders. He has published more than 400 research articles and reviews in peer-reviewed journals. He has served as president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, president of the World Federation of Societies of Intensive Care, Critical Care Medicine, and president of the Italian Society of Anesthesia, Analgesia, Reanimation, and Intensive Care. It's a true honor to have him as a guest. Luciano, welcome to Critical Matters. Hi, everybody. Hi to everybody. Hmm? So I think that we are definitely uh, living unprecedented times in terms of this COVID-19 pandemic really affecting every single country in the world and being, I think, in the forefront of our colleague intensivist uh, day in and day out now. Uh, and I think that one of the things that I've noticed uh, is that there's also been an explosion of information, an infodemic with good and bad information. But one of the reasons why I, I reached out was because I had seen in a lot of um, forums, people posting thoughts and, and recommendations attributed to you that then when I finally was able to read a opinion piece that you had put uh, in the Blue Journal, didn't seem to represent exactly what you were saying and thinking. But I do think that there are some very important lessons to, to learn about what we know about the lung disease that COVID-19 is, is producing. So Luciano, maybe we could start with just a basic review of our understanding of ventilator-induced lung injury and lung protective ventilation. And maybe you could just give us like a very a basic a basic a overview on Billy and how you think about barotrauma, volume trauma, stress strain, and we can start there. Okay, <clears throat> well, uh, you know, uh, the ventilator-induced lung injury, as it's called now, has been recognized just after the initiation of the ventilation in, the me in the mechanical ventilation and was called barotrauma. Why barotrauma? Because the, about 50%, 60% of the patient had pneumothorax, pneumovidiastinum, and so on. So the pressure uh, use was up to 100 centimeters of water. Then with Dreyfus, the concept shifted from barotrauma to volotrauma, because Dreyfus uh, uh, mm, said, DDA said, okay, if I wrap the thorax with uh, an anelastic uh, substance, so I impede the dilatation of the thorax, I can use whatever pressure I want, there is no problem. It's the concept of the divers. You go down with a, a lot of atmosphere, you can go to 10 atmosphere and the land does not explode, because you have 10 atmosphere outside. But the concept evolved uh, to stress and strain, and basically to make short and long story, the strain, which is the, I think is the fundamental part of the business, is when the lung structure is stretched over a certain degrees over his resting position. Resting position is a function of the residual capacity. If I add PEEP, I already strain in part of the lung. If I add the tidal volume, I strain even more. And uh, what uh, it appears quite consistent is that when the strain goes over the total lung capacity, 
not just for one breath, but for several breaths, and maybe for one day or several hours, the lung, uh, you, you got the ventilator-induced lung injury, which manifests with what? It manifests or with rupture, if you have a stress or strain of rupture, or with an inflammatory reaction that we cannot distinguish from the normal RDS, because you have uh, inflammatory cells, edema, uh, and so on. So, uh, by the way, if the last thing to, 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 re to remember is that the stress and strain are not distributed homogeneously into the lung, but are particularly important in the lung region where the uh, elasticity is different. In these regions, the stress and strain are concentrated because one, one region or one structure expands more than the others. This is called focused stress, and is one of the problems of the non-homogeneity of the lung. So basically, the ventilator-induced lung injury is a strain of the lung above his physical capability, to which follows the rupture after days. But don't forget that within the lung, there is one organ which is called heart. And we cannot speak about the lung if you do not consistently think to the hemodynamic. Because anytime the lung is hyperinflated or stressed, the heart is compressed, disappears behind, behind the, the vertebral column, and the, the, the venous return decreases, the kidneys start to suffer, and so and so. So I think in the concept of Billy, should be integrated also the concept of the hemodynamic involvement. So I think that to summarize, yeah, summarize for our for our listeners, Dr. Gattinoni, the the stress really would be equivalent to the the pressure, the trans the transpleural pressure, right? And that's right. Is the the transpulmonary pressure, which corresponds to a given strain. You cannot strain the lung without applying a change in pressure. So is a, these are two phases of the same metal, the same metal. And the constant of proportionality between stress and strain is called specific elastance. So that means the transpulmonary pressure or stress is equal to K, which is specific elastance, times Let's see, tidal volume plus PIP volume divide the resting lung volume. This is the basic equation of a stress and strain. So I think that one, I have two questions. And the first question is that it is evident that no matter what we are doing with a patient or whatever syndrome they have, if they're on mechanical ventilation, considering ways to minimize the injury from stress and strain obviously is something that would help them clinically right as a basic concept that's right but you know i think that if you want to approach a rational mechanical ventilation you have to know which are the lung condition we start with if the ventilable lung is very small we call it baby lung no? it's very more in one thing if you have a lung which a very large volume is another completely different things. But the concept of stress and strain applied in both conditions. In one, you will have less volume to cause, let's call harmful strain in the other condition will be a larger tidal volume when we start with a larger resting volume. Unfortunately, nobody measure the volume and nobody measure how much volume is due to PEEP. The PEEP is a pressure and rise up the lung volume. So it's easier with the tidal volume, higher is the PEEP, it's easier to reach the total lung capacity, which is the limit. You know, the literature is full of a protective effect of PEEP. But this protective effect of PEEP are due because the PEEP is high, or because the tidal volume has been reduced. Because you don't see any protection when you rise the PEEP at the same tidal volume. 
at that point may be a disaster. And I think that's an important point because a lot of people assume that that high peep independently of what else you're doing might work or might not work. And I think that you're saying everything is really connected. Uh, that's why the I to me uh I repeat I, I'm not the true in the pocket, but to me this is an uh, a very severe mistake to consider that. The so the, the second yeah. for the rest. The second question, Luciano, I have regarding this whole concept of stress and strain in, in Billy is what about people who are not on mechanical ventilation? Is there potential for lung injury by increasing stress and strain in somebody who has respiratory failure and is spontaneously breathing? That's uh, well, okay. Let me consider it. What does the mechanical ventilation? The mechanical ventilation substitutes the respiratory muscle, right? does not substitute the gas exchange, just substitute the respiratory muscle. So if instead of the energy provided by the ventilator, I provide a similar energy from the muscles, the question of stress strain are exactly the same. Change the hemodynamic, but the stress strain are exactly the same. In Ted Kolobov, well, in the 38s, Barak proved that very clearly. In 1988, Mascheroni and Kolobov, was always 20 years ahead of the rest of the of the world, were injecting some acetyl acid in the cisterna magna of the ship, so the ship started to have a very big tidal volume is to have a very big mechanical ventilation. In 24 hours, this lung had ARDS perfect, perfectly in spontaneous breathing with an airway pressure zero. But the transpulmonary pressure was huge. And now this concept has been rediscovered, revised, and so on by Brochard, Pesente, Slasky, when they described the patient self-inductor lung injury, which is extremely important overall in this COVID-19 pneumonia, I think. But you know, for the, the yeah. same transpulmonary pressure, if it's harmful, maybe it's exactly harmful, exactly harmful in mechanical ventilation and in spontaneous breathing. The big difference between the two is the hemodynamic. With the spontaneous breathing, you suck the blood into the central system. With the mechanical ventilation, you squeeze out the blood from the mechanical system. Yeah. And I think that those are important concepts, like you said, that we'll touch a little bit later when we talk specifically about COVID-19. But I think yes. that to close this 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 first segment, Dr. Gattinoni, um, <coughs> When I, when I hear people talk about lung protective ventilation, I think that most clinicians at the bedside think of two things. They think of small tidal volume and they think of a, a plateau pressure below 30. That's kind of in their mind. And some people might think high peep, some people might think low peep, but that's kind of what people think. But really from what I'm hearing you talk about, lung protective ventilation not only applies maybe to mechanical ventilation, but applies to any person where any patient we're supporting and really is about utilizing the tools we have available to minimize damage on the lung from stress and strain. Is is that would that be an appropriate way of thinking of it about it? Absolutely. I think uh, what you have to think, the people is not customer to measure the pleural pressures, unfortunately. But what counts uh, is the pleural, the transpulmonary pressure, so the difference between airway and the outside of the pressure, which is equal to the stress. And then the basic concept applied equally. <coughs> and the tidal volume ventilation protective, where we have the magic six milliliters per kilo, which is better than 12. Not necessarily is better than eight, depending on the compliance the patient start with, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the second concept, be careful with the hyper, uh, how they call, hyperprotective. 
because the people say if six is better than 12, five would be better than six, four better than five, three better than two, minus 10 better than zero. It's not like that. Because if you go at a hyperprotective ventilation with, let's see, four of people, the four of uh, volume, you uh, look at the CO2 because you have a risk of uh, hypoventilation. And hypoventilation, even if you use CO2 remover, is hypoventilation. That means the gas which arrive at the alveolar level are not enough. The oxygen consumed is much more than oxygen transfer from the air to the alveoli. That means after a while, this unit undergo in reabsorption at electasis. So this is the intrinsic risk of the very low uh, so-called hyperprotective. I think we should protect sometimes the lung from the doctors. Well, uh, <laughs> I agree. And I think that, that, that also what, what people, I think, fail when they don't understand, when we walk away from understanding the basic physiology, is that on, a, on average, if you took thousands of patients, because of what we've discussed, six mls is probably safer in reducing the strain and associated with a lower stress than 12 mls but that's an average yeah this is absolutely true but remember to look always to the pco2 because the pco2 tell you the degree of uh, alveolar ventilation we are dealing with so the gas exchange uh, is, is mathematic you know uh, you have to consider all the, the variables uh, at play, not just to oxygen or just the CO2 or just the frequency or just the... the, the... We, we try to introduce the concept of mechanical power in terms of theory, which is the, the, the sum, the product is a variable which takes together the pressures, the volume and the frequency. And what we found, at least experimentally, for a given damage is, is a risk when you give a given package of mechanical power. Sometimes with lower tidal volume but very high frequency, it's just as bad as higher tidal volume with far lower frequency. Frequency is always forgot. But if I have a, a, a bad tidal volume, 10 per minus, 20 per minus, or 40 per minus, make a tremendous difference. But the people does not consider this one. Yeah. I think the mechanical power will gain uh, some popularity. Not now, because now the people is, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is busy with other things. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, it's hard to apply it to a thousand patients at yeah. once, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But I think it's a, it's important. I mean, no matter what's going on, to always try to learn from from what we're seeing, so that tomorrow we could do things a little bit better. So let's. Okay, but you know, I think the mechanical power will be implemented in the ventilator. Excellent. So sooner or later we come out one number joule per minute, and you know what is the energy we are putting in the system, because, because the, uh, yeah, all the data, all all, all the numbers are available in you know, whatever modern ventilator and i think that that also the interesting concept i mean that you said like frequency is always forgotten but i think that also applies to clinical scenarios that i've seen for example people struggling with non-invasive with a respiratory rate in the high 30s and and they kind of puddle along and probably causing tremendous amount of injury to their lungs and then when they finally get intubated we kind of wonder why they have such a bad outcome right <laughs> You know, you know what, what, what I found uh, terrible in, in a non-invasive ventilation is that theoretically, the only difference you have with uh, invasive ventilation is the tube. But uh, with the non-invasive ventilation, you don't know anything or what you are doing. You do not know even how much is the tidal volume you are delivering. You do not have an idea of the transpulmonary pressure the patient is generating. To me, the, using the mechanical ventilation without the esophageal pressure that tell me how much are the swings of the pleural pressure of the patient is as to drive during the night in a foggy night uh, without uh, knowing where to go, maybe in a forest. Very dangerous. <laughs> so 
let's let's talk a little bit about COVID nineteen uh, associated severe acute respiratory illness, and I think that one of the observations that you and your colleagues have made is that there might be things that are appear to be similar to what we call ARDS, which is also a syndrome, like 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 we all know, but there might be some things that appear to be different, and that might have implications in the way we should be thinking or approaching these patients. So maybe you could just start by giving us a, a summary of what we know so far, and then maybe talk about what is similar to ARDS, and more importantly, what is different to other forms of ARDS that we usually treat. Well, of course, I think I'm playing with ARDS since 40 years, <clears throat> but I never saw in a classical ARDS, let's see, severe ARDS, because this patient very often have a PF below 100, so they have an hypoxemia comparable with severe RDS. They have some ground glass, so they have bilateral involvement of the lung, bilateral pneumonia, but, but the compliance is 60, 70, sometimes 80, in more than 50% of the patient while they do present. And I never saw something like that in uh, never. Maybe it occurs one twice, but really is extremely rare, I put in this way, in the severe RDS. If you go to the Bellani, the, the, the safe study, you see that even the mild RDS, the compliance is always below 40. Goes from 40, uh, 35, 30, here we have a median and a mean greater than 50. So this is the fundamental basis to start with. We have to sit down and to say how this is possible. Then we have a lot of CT scan of the patient, which are done very rarely. And let me let me try to, to tell you the the story, as I see the story, which I collect discussing with the nurses, with the colleagues from different hospitals in Lombardia, and after studying and examining a lot of CD scanner data coming from my colleagues. Uh, have you five minutes of patience for that? Hello? Yes. Are you there? Okay. Because. Yeah. yeah. If we don't have the pathophysiology clear in mind uh, to speak about the treatment to me is a nonsense. Yep. So let's start in this way. The virus comes. What does the virus? While the bacteria affect mainly the alveolar size of the problem, that we have consolidation, the virus interferes primarily with the vessels yes. and with the endothelial cells. So you have vasoplegia. Vasoplegia, what means? What means that the regulation of the blood through the lung is lost. If it's lost, where the blood tends to go, tends to go according to the gravity, which does not happen normally. We have quite homogeneous distribution of blood. So we have, due to this vasoplegia, which may originate from endothelial stimulation and O and so on, for many, many reasons, possible reasons, you have a, a tremendous VAQ mismatch. VAQ mismatch is a rather complicated physiological concept, but very briefly means that if one part of the lung I have a lot of ventilation and very, very, very small perfusion. In the other part of the lung, I have a small ventilation and very, very high perfusion. What is the final result? If you play with the models, you may have a tremendous hypoxemia, even with 60, 70, 80% of a shunt. And this hypoxemia at the beginning is very sensitive to oxygen. Now, when this patient go into the hospital, we have several patients, and this is consistent observation throughout the world, that come 
with 60, 65 of oxygen saturation, that means 35 of PO2, and do not accuse anything else but some fever, are not bisnoic. Why? Because when you have this kind of hypoxemia, which is due to the vasoplegia, the brain, our center, reacts, activating, trying to increase the tidal volume, so increase the minute ventilation. Now, if you have a good compliance, if you increase the tidal volume, you don't have any dyspnea, because you make an effort and you find that the air coming into the land is exactly what we expect for this kind of effort. It is clear, this concept? Mm -hmm. Yes. This may happens when you have some effort. I expect some amount of air and I receive less. Yep. Now, let's see, I have a patient that come three days later into the hospital and he stayed at home with this big breath. Big breath, what that means? Means big shift of pleural pressure, big negative pressure. And so we are back to tidal volume and to self-inducted lung injury. If I have this, I start to have more blood, return blood into the lung. I have to filter more plasma and the lung becomes more heavy and so become more edematous. And the picture start to resemble to RDS because the compliance goes down. Mm -hmm. And from 70 goes maybe to 50. Three days later, is at 35. At this point, you are perfect picture of RDS. And you see this perfectly well following the CT scan with these patients. You see exactly the transition from what we call L, light status, that means low VQ, low elastance, low Langway, low edema, to the high status or high type, which is high elastance, which means low compliance, high volume, uh, high uh, lung weight, etc., etc. So at this point, I have some patient coming in a hospital which breathes normally without this name. Some patient coming this night. Some patients come in severely dysnoic. What they do have in common? They are all hypoxemic because the hypoxemia is due to this tremendous VQ mismatch. At this point, if I have a gas which is full of, a lung which is full of gas or a lung which is without, with a very small amount of gas, and lot of edema. Would you use the same therapy? Or in a lung full of gas, can you explain me why to use 15 of PIP with a mask? One look at the PO2, if apply the PIP FIO2 table, you end up with 20 of PIP. With 20 of PIP, you kill this patient, not all, but a good, uh, good amount. Just to tell you something that me impressed a lot. I was called a couple of days ago from uh, an hospital in Switzerland. They had a 40 patient with a COPD, with a COVID, and they were applying. As soon as the, 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 the chef went to see the inspiratory effort, that means the negative pressure, the ceiling, he was taking immediately the patient in intensive care because they had a space for that and was putting in paralysis and mechanical ventilation. So reducing this tremendous uh, possibility of villain. Mm -hmm. And 40% for the patient all survived. In a hospital 20 kilometers close to there, they were applying similar amount of patients, they were applying uh, the suggested guideline. So IPIP, uh, 
and then uh, maybe delayed intubation and so on. The mortality was greater than 50 percent. In uh, in Athens, they told me the mortality was about 90 percent. Applying uh, the forms of ventilation that you apply in LDS. Then you tell me the patients were different, the one were older, the comorbidity were different. But when you go from four from zero to fifty to ninety, I think we should, with extreme honest intellectual honesty, ask ourselves: Are we doing something dramatically wrong? This is the first question. Before to say no, this patient is different from mine because. Of... Having said that, I think if I take a patient with 70 on compliance and I give a mask of non-invasive ventilation with 50, well, I have two with 15. I have two possibilities. The idea should would would be to measure the inspiratory effort. But uh, you can, okay, you don't have an esophageal balloon, you don't know how to use, okay. But look carefully. For one hour or two, what is the effort that the patient makes? If he starts to use some respiratory accessory muscle, if you have some um, ribs uh, inflow, if you have a change in abdominal movement, if the patient is like this, you means that is continually to induce a very big damage in his lung. At this point, I would suggest an immediate ventilation and paralysis. If the patient, very few, can support that, maybe you cut the visual cycle. Because if the patient continues, it will get edema. If he got edema, he will have greater inspiratory effort to keep the tidal volume. And so you have a, a tremendous picture. So I think if the patient is inspiratory effort associated with low tidal, low oxygenation that does not respond to 5, 10, 15 or oxygen therapy, I think for what we know now to suggest immediate intubation. And without any spontaneous moving of the patient. So, or deep sedation or paralysis. Of course, the patient will improve the PO2. When, when, what do you do when you start to see the PO2, which is good in RDS? You start to win. If you do that with this patient after two days, you lose what you ever gained because this disease, disease, not syndrome, requires time and until the virus has not been eliminated by our antibodies or some miracle you cannot win the patient you just the patient start to breathe as a hell and to have again uh, dyspnea and then have again edema and so on so this uh, depend to me the therapy to be introduced depends on the phase that you see the patient and at what is the stage at there. Although I do not have the ideal therapy, I know what is wrong. In this condition, it's easier to do mistake doing something than don't doing nothing. You know, sometimes I wonder if the patient comes perfectly okay with 70 of saturation and 14 of hemoglobin. It's not different for the patient with nitrogen saturation, 95 and 10 of hemoglobin, which is our use in intensive care. Yeah. I should put a very strength in or just to be patient and to observe and to think at the physiology and to try to measure whatever is possible to measure. I know that in front line is difficult. But you don't have to lose the entire paradigm. And I think that a couple of things I wanted to dive deeper in, Dr. Gattinoni. Number one is I think that something that that we're seeing across the country and in our group. I mean, we have cared for probably over 500 
COVID critical care patients around the country. And I think that that whole point that you made about patients is very important also as we're trying to extubate these patients. I think mm-hmm. people are falling, finding that if they extubate them too quickly, they often will get reintubated. And I think it just applies to a very basic concept that I is think it, I learned as a it, medical student. If it takes you eight days to get sick, it doesn't take you two days to get better, right? Absolutely. I mean, this pneumonia lasts at least 15 days. If you pretend to extubate after five days, it's a disaster. Not only you have to reintubate the patient, but you have lost maybe 30% of the benefit you had before. And I know that to be patient, to do nothing is difficult in intensive care. Because intensive care, the people is accustomed to, I turn it off, I see the result, I, I'm fast, quick, and rational. But in this case, to be rational, you have to be slow and quiet. And, and I think it applies also to other therapies and something I worry about. Um, we've all been um, taught in medicine, first do no harm, primum nom nocere. And Absolutely. I think that when you are dealing with thousands of patients, anything that potentially could be harmful gets magnified at such a level that I think it, it's extremely dangerous. And I think that people are very anxious and like you said, they, they feel that doing something is always better than not doing something. And I think that not only in our discussion with mechanical ventilation, but with all these drugs that are experimental, there's no proof that they work. I oh, also fear know, the same consequences. Let me need to words about the drugs. No? Unfortunately, this, this patient, and overall in an emergency, go through infectivologists, pneumologists, or somebody that never show one ventilator and acute respiratory failure. And they were given uh, whatever, with one result, uh, antivirus, uh, uh, chloroquine, uh, um, uh, anti-L6, anti-L1, whatever. Okay, cortisone, yes, cortisone, no. The result with the antivirus, that you kill the liver and you don't kill the virus. And I'm not aware of any drug which is effective. I think that these people, we have to wait for them. We had the research and some studies that said, okay, this work or not. At the moment, I think the only thing that we can do is to provide nutrition, to keep the patient alive as more gentle as possible and pay, I forgot this, as this is a vessel and notated disease, is probably one of the most prothrombotic situation you can observe in intensive care. That means, the micro the micro um, micro thrombosis may be absolutely frequent, and also some macro thrombosis, as a frank pulmonary embolism or a brain damage with that. So I suggest and look at the dimmer. When the dimmer is greater than two thousand, no, we start with a prophylaxis as double as normal. And we start with the anticoagulation when the tendency of the dimmer goes up. Believe me, this is an extreme import. I lost my friend, one friend of mine, 10 days ago. He was recovering from pneumonia and he got a stroke. And all the patients, all the, all the people who did the autopsy, they did at least, I had a report of 50 autopsies in Brescia. They had uh, endothelial cells flowing in the blood and a lot of micro thrombosis at the histological uh, examination. And I think that obviously that, that goes into also the whole idea of the, the VQ mismatch that we started the discussion with and what happens in this early phase. Two, two more questions, Dr. Gattinoni. So these phenotypes of L and, and, and H, the low and high, um, some people have presented that as two distinct diseases. From what I understand, you're really thinking oh, that no. that is one, it's a progression, right? That's right. The one is the progression to the other. Sometimes the progression stopped naturally, okay? And one, some patients stopped at the status L. Some patient progresses to the status H. I think that some therapy helped to progress from L to H. 
because uh, a wrong therapy would force the patient to have uh, too many effort compared uh, what is allowed in this condition. But the, the, I, I think that the picture I put in the in this uh, I don't remember if in the editorial or in ECM editorial is the same patient seven days apart. Yeah, and the seven days were CPAP, a lot of inspiratory effort, and very badly tolerated non-invasive ventilation. Yeah, and I think that. It lets, we can go a little bit deeper into some of the treatments, but I think that early on, obviously, people have recognized that these patients are hypoxic, so the immediate reaction is you give them oxygen. And like yes. you said, in many patients, that, that's enough, and the majority of patients do better. Now, as the oxygen requirements keeps going up, the next step in our usual approach to these patients is to escalate there and either use high-flow nasal cannula, high-flow oxygen, or in some people, they would use non-invasive. And I think that People have been focusing on the non-invasive um, mostly as something to avoid because they're worried that that can increase the aerosolization of droplets and increase their risk of infection. But really, yeah. I think that the point here is that there's potential for more injury, there's potential for worse outcomes, and that has been suggested in some of the series. And now when you're making these pathophysiological observations, that makes sense. So it's not that you cannot use non-invasive, but if you use it, within the hour, either it's better or it's a problem and you have to move to intubation. Is that the way my, to interpret? My suggestion is you can try, but limit the time and please be extremely careful to the minimal sign of inspiratory effort the patient is made. The idea would be to put an esophageal pressure, but nobody put esophageal pressure in the peace time you can imagine the war time. Yeah. <laughs> I... Not practical. Okay, but you know, sometimes yeah, the people but you can look. with the helicopter is more practical to pull esophageal pressure inside. Anyway, is uh, uh, to me what we can do in terms of not harm is uh, to uh, avoid the patient in, in uh, patient inflicted self-inflicted lung injury. Siri, this way, okay, which yep. is a, a whole story. So, up whatever side that this patient may generate Siri, you have to intubate, paralysis, and keep for the time sufficient to heal. What about high flow oxygen, Dr. Gattinoni, and uh, the concept of a uh, dead space in these patients? Well, you know, the dead space, uh, anytime you have a BAQ demand distribution, you have, of course, if you have low ventilation in one part and high perfusion in the other part, I have high ventilation and low perfusion, which is read, which is read as a dead space. Plus, uh, there is uh, the possibility of a microthrombosis. But remember, this patient at the beginning I don't think they do have in general microthrombosis because they come with a PCO2 25, 30, 35. When the PCO2 goes up, that means that the structure of the lung starts to modify. I am more afraid from the rise of PCO2 than from decrease of oxygen because the PCO2 change reflects the structural change of the lung. And I think that's also something analogous to what we've seen in ARDS. Uh, yes. Patients can tolerate hypoxemia. I mean, you can go to the top of Everest and have a PO2 that's very low and come back down. You're not critically ill, but still, even in critically ill patients, we've seen that. But when you can't ventilate somebody, like you said, it reflects that there's been a change in the lung, and that's usually a very bad sign for that patient. Yes. Yes. So let's let's talk a little bit about how you would approach them once they get intubated. You, you you talked early on, especially in this low phase, uh, early on that you would obviously deep sedation if possible, paralysis, and uh, make sure that you're you're looking at. But in a patient with uh, which manifests some effort, okay, because if the patient does not manifest any effort, uh, maybe may tolerate easily. But this patient has to be observed carefully. The worst is that for reason of lack of beds 
offer, offer a lack of attention from the doctors and nurses, the patients stay two, three days having a big inspiratory effort uh, in spontaneous breathing or even in non invasive mechanical ventilation. This is the point. The, the motor is uh, the behavior of the pleural pressure swings that you don't see, but you have to imagine that do exist. Yep. And I think that that's a good point that we have uh, traditionally not really applied or thought 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 about. And I think in terms of current recommendations, Dr. Gattinoni, I think that you could still fit these into a way, a rational way of approaching this. And I think that people recommend that we use uh, lower tidal volumes in general, four to eight. Doesn't mean that everybody should be six. So, for example, if somebody has a good compliance, maybe eight. It's a, it's a perfectly you know for for this start. patient, if you have a compliance of eight in a patient who did a big start with big effort, you have intubated. The compliance is sixty-five. I do use eight or use six. Look at the PCO two. If the PCO two go to sixty with six, use eight or even nine. Look at the plateau pressure. Will be far from be thirty. The plateau pressure will be 22, 23, with the people seven, eight, because you don't require any big peep to correct a little bit the distribution of the blood. Remember, you don't have any recruitability in the L patient. And you have some recruitability, not tremendous, in H patient. Mm -hmm. You know what it seems to me, I don't have patient enough, but in a patient which look in the sequence in the CT, maybe they start L, they become H. When they start to recover from H status, you see that the big consolidation in the dependent region decrease, and you see back still the ground glass. So you see the virus behind that. It's, a, it's, it's very interesting, you know. Not pleasant. And, and what a, yeah, very, yeah. It's tough because of the numbers, but like you said, I mean, there's always an opportunity to learn and understand also that uh, people want dogma and want an answer. Give me a formula that I can apply to everybody and they'll be saved. And okay, I think that that type of magical yeah. thinking is very dangerous. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid it's very dangerous. I mean, uh, tell me why I need a doctor if I have to do medicine in that way. What about tell me, tell me why I should use a standard therapy, let's see ARDS, for an unstandard situation? Yeah. Why I have to use gasoline for a, a car which goes with diesel? Yeah. Play the car. And Dr. Gattinoni, so I think that in terms of uh, I think the title volume, like you said, look at the compliance, look at That's the effort. Right very important look at the plateau pressure all those things i think people that's have right. recognized that's what right. about the peep would you think that the way to really which the way i've always thought about peep is use the least amount of peep that that you need is that okay. still true stay stay in that line which is perfect the minimal amount of peep that you need in this patient if you're in an patient i think you can run easily with seven eight of peep without any problem because when I told you the compliance we measure, all the compliance, 78, were measured at five of PIP. So in standard condition, yeah. when we measure that. Interesting. So I don't see any reason to have a 15 of PIP, and I know that this may be a disaster. And anytime you play with PIP, and I know that very few do that, look at the heart function or look at the echo when you increase peep look at the right heart with the echo and see what's happened immediately or take a venous blood and look at vo2 or look how goes the plateau pressure increase peep keeping the tidal volume the plateau pressure rise as i rise the peep rise more or rise less and you have an idea of what's going on and then set the minimum. And I think that that's an important concept. Is and it, you're not saying don't use PEEP, you're saying use the minimum amount of PEEP because as you go to the H phase and you might have more recruitability and more like an ARDS picture, 
you might need a little bit you might need higher peep right you you may need higher peep and the best thing is to make a test and to measure yeah because also in this one you don't have a we never observe so far spectacular recruitability i say recruitability not spectacular increase of oxygen yeah. because increase of oxygen is another thing than recruitability the oxygen may increase without any recruitability as in air patient the oxygen increase in prone position or with some people and so on not because of recruitability but because of a flow diversion the flow goes in areas in uh, in which the vaq is more favorable that's it so let me ask you since you mentioned about prone positioning that's been i think uh, recommended and a lot of people who have done it including myself have seen it basically you have a response but it's not as the response requires proning for longer periods of times which goes along with two observations you made one is that this is a slow process in improving and two that perhaps the benefits of prone positioning are related to redistribution of blood so obviously when you put them back supine that redistribution changes again and you have to prone them again but you you think that prone positioning i mean because of that mechanism if it works i mean might be something to think about well i think as a rescue maneuver you can use Uh, you don't have any way a big damages with prone position even it lacks in health patient the prerequisite to really be effective, which is which are the better distribution of stress and strain. But consider also that you have a lot of patients uh, having 20 patients, 25 patients in prone position may stress the nurses uh, at a degree which you, you may avoid. Why? Yeah. In patient, in uh, the age patient, I think the proposition is uh, absolutely correct because proposition basically makes less dangerous whatever thing you do to the pro- to the lung. So uh, is some form of protection, the proposition. I would use it in, uh, as a therapy <coughs> in, uh, <coughs> in age patients I would use as a rescue also to save the nurses in the in the air patients. And what about um, people have proposed, and I've seen in some patients and with with ABGs, um, non-intubated patients who I mean can self-prone or cooperative proning, and just telling them sleep on your belly. I mean uh, when you can. And checking the gases and seeing, I mean, a change. Obviously, it has to do probably with redistribution of the blood. Well, but any well, any thoughts on that? Well, well, no. We have some uh, some of my colleagues uh, and uh, studied this problem, put it thirty and so on. Um, so somebody will come out. My suggestion: ask the patient. Ask the patient: Do you feel better in this position or in that position? It's very simple. He's not intubated, he's conscious, and he can tell you perfectly. Some colleague of mine told me that the patient say, oh, okay, I'm much better in this position. Some other patients say, no, I prefer the semi-recumbent position to the supine. Some patient increase in the supine position, the PO2. The problem is that when you lose our regulation of blood, the blood follows the gravity the i, I don't know what but is a depends how the lung is compromised and the blood goes through the gravity but it's interesting thing to study anyway in proposition usually the oxygenation goes up at least for the first four or five days then the response for oxygenation becomes lower in a patient non-intubated I would put in proposition if the patient are very hypoxemic and maybe even overall have dyspnoic or start with some dyspnea waiting for the bed and the intubation, I would uh, I, I would ask the patient because the patient is the better judge of his uh, of his condition, I think, in this con- in this situation. He breathes better or not. Yeah. And in terms of uh, of steroids, uh, I think that clearly for for the L phase, I mean, probably the data would say don't use it in everybody. 
But now I think that some people have concerns with the effect it might have on viral pneumonias with prolonged viral shedding and replication. Okay. What well, are your uh, thoughts, Dr. Catinoni? Well, let's see, because uh, I don't want to give you the impression that from LH is just due to the, the doctors and so on. Huh? You may go from LH probably even with the what we call what you think is the best treatment because of the aggressivity of the virus and the host response as everything starts with a reaction in the endothelial and with some cytokine storm i have several colleagues who start to measure the cytokine all the inflammatory cytokine goes up the anti-inflammatory cytokine in some patients are close to zero, in some patients are activated. But I think if the logic of steroids and so on is to decrease the progress, the over-inflammation, I would use at the beginning more than at the end. I would use in L phase to prevent a possible transit to the H phase. But I can I don't have any really any any answer because in my life i saw the steroids coming in and coming out so many times in 40 years that i stopped to believe to that yeah so i think that theoretically i mean that would be the argument but like you said i mean so far we have not been able to show that really That's we should right. or I, shouldn't you know yeah. i have an adult response if you see the patient i think with 80 milligrams of prednisone you didn't carry anybody, okay? And so I think uh, in some situation, I would not hesitate to try. Yeah. So we don't have to be so dogmatic because there is uh, some rational. I think if the patient is uh, six to weeks in mechanical ventilation with uh, 35 of peak, uh, 60 of PCO2, et cetera, et cetera, you may give the steroids, but it's just for you, not for the patient. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm? And the last thing I wanted to, to ask you about treatment, and then we'll, we'll wrap up, and I'm really thankful for your time and your generosity with all your, your thoughts, it relates to, uh, obviously, concerns about um, lack of ventilators or potential shortfalls in the numbers of ventilators. I mean, I know that there was a lot of talk about that in Italy. Now it's occurring in New York and in the United States. And I don't want to get into the ethical aspect. I think that's a conversation for a whole episode. But what about the thoughts of having more than one patient on one ventilator. It just seems that with a lot of things that we discussed and the potential for harm, that could be a very bad idea. Well, I think that in one ventilator, let's see, you have the chance to kill one patient 50%. With two ventilators, I think the chance to kill two patients are 70%. Because, or you know the physiology and the mechanical engineer so good that you use just the force of the ventilator for it and you perfectly regulate the resistances the diameter the caliber you choose the patient with a perfect similar compliance characteristic but during the war this does not work i think so i think the double ventilator was i think patented 20 years ago in the states but uh, I think uh, really is uh, is not medicine to me. I'll talk I know that Kamarek, Brody, so very distinguished and, and very very dear colleagues. They say no, if you do the good uh, the good protocol, good. But try to imagine how to win the patient in double ventilation until you put the patient and keep paralyzed. You are just something, and you do like this. Okay, maybe you can survive. But when you have to, to follow all the course of the disease, it's very complicated. Yeah, I think that's important because, I, like I said, I think with the, with the anxiety that people have, everything that's new and different sounds like that's what we should be doing. And I think that people obviously are not thinking, uh, what are the things that we understand? What are the things that we can apply? And how can we first uh, avoid doing more harm? But you know, by the way, it's not really so complicated. Because let's see, once we have decided to put a patient asleep, you put a sedation, 
parades. They voice spontaneous breathing. Put eight to ten of people after checking the hemodynamics and don't do absolutely nothing for 10 days. But the usual, of course, the usual care. Yeah. There is nothing to do. This sometimes is the problem. Nothing to do. Please don't go this, oh, I have to win. Baloney, you don't have to win anybody at the moment because you make a disaster. I have to change if I have to have to change. No, don't do it. Give, leave the patient in peace until the body wins the virus. The, what you do may be more dangerous than what you don't do. And when you multiply that by the numbers that we're seeing, obviously the potential for harm it raises exponentially, which is some of the things that I always worry about. Yes, yes. Well, Dr. No, Gattinoni, mm, go ahead. No, no, just one consideration uh, that I already did with uh, another one. I, I think it's very irritating somebody to hear somebody that say, as I do now, do this, do that, suggest uh, sitting in the office, uh, relax uh, with some water to drink uh, and good time outside. But believe me, you are in front line. In front line, sometimes it's very difficult to see the course of all the battles, which is easier when you collect a lot of information from different sources to make a story. So the story I told you is not just from one or two people. It's collected from several, several colleagues and I didn't find anybody until today that told me, no, the patient described are completely different from what uh, we have seen. Everybody see this exactly the same patient. Depends the difference sometimes at the timing at which you see them. Therefore, it's the fundamental to have an idea of the timing of the cause of this damn disease which is under the umbrella of RDS, but to me, well, to call it RDS, I have some difficult. But let's call it as you want. There's no problem. Yep. I think that's important. And like I said, I really appreciate um, your time. We traditionally close the podcast with a couple of questions that are unrelated to the topic that I think that what I found is that even in those these very difficult times where people are very focused on a lot of what has not happened yet and trying to figure out how to deal with things. Routine, I think, is always a good anchor to kind of bring us back to, to center. So would that be okay, Dr. Gattinoni? Okay. So the first question relates to books. And is there a book or books that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted most often to others? Well, a good question. Well, there are several, I'm afraid. But the first that occurred in my mind is uh, Siddhartha, by Herman Hesse and uh, The Prince from Machiavelli, which is an unbelievably great book. If you want to be a chief, read The Prince. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, that, that one of them really focused on finding yourself and the other one on dealing with others. But I think it's a, it's a very nice combination. So we'll definitely put those in the show notes. Uh, the second question relates to what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe. And I think that the whole conversation has really centered around one of those things, but I'll let you answer it anyway. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, I think that what is true in medicine is, uh, uh, is pathophysiology and physiology. And a lot of people do not, it's not that do not believe, but they do not know, which is even worse. I think that that is something true that we see. I mean, a lot of, of colleagues in terms of how they apply not only these concepts, but also, unfortunately, how they interpret what, what's published, right? It's not evidence-based, it's just reference-based. And that's anything right. that, that's published in social media seems to have the, the same weight as a peer review article in a high-impact journal. What would you want every intensivist to know? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's well, the last one. I, I think 
I would suggest to read three books, which are books of mono author. One is Respiratory Applied Physiology by Nun. The second is The Pathway for Oxygen, Viable, Function and Anatomy. The third one is Acid Base and Electrolyze Equilibrium by Rose. All mono author, all the view of the same brain in a big problem. I don't like the books which are the collection of several authors. I prefer to read the soul of one single author in a single issue. These make my life different, these three books, in terms of profession. So we will definitely link those to the to, to the show notes. Dr. Gattinoni, um, thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us your thoughts. I think that definitely a lot of wisdom and a lot of actionable uh, things here for our audience. Uh, I hope you stay safe and that we have a chance to talk again soon and hopefully maybe even see you next year, maybe in a in a conference in Mexico City. Well, no, you 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 be careful huh? because at the moment are you more exposed at the at the problem. But uh, remember that the people we end up with H status are probably one over 500 or over 1,000. So the chances are, uh, are very low. But you have to know it. Okay? Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.